This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm so excited to talk to my friend, Dr. Fergus Rolston, about Belfast Punk and the Troubles and Oral History, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. Belfast Punk and the Troubles is an oral history of Belfast Punk seen from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s that explores what it was like to be a punk in a city shaped by the violence of the Troubles and how this differed from being a punk elsewhere. It suggests a critical understanding of sectarianism, subjectivity, and memory politics in Northern Ireland, and argues for the importance of placing punk within the segregated structures of everyday life described by the interviewees. Adopting an innovative oral history approach, the book analyzes a small number of oral history interviews in granular detail, looking at the punk scene as a structure of feeling shaped through the experience of growing up in wartime Belfast. Fergus Rolston is Chancellor's Fellow in the History of Activism at the University of Strathclyde. He is co-reviews editor of the Oral History Journal, and he's also a member of that journal's editorial board. His work focuses on how interpretative oral history and memory studies can illuminate people's affective and discursive relations to politics, place, and culture, generally in the context of the Troubles and the North of Ireland. Fergus, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks very much, Isabel. Thanks for having me. So I usually start these interviews with a question that that's something that I'm very interested in and curious about. How did uh, this book uh, come about? Or as I like to say it, what is your book's origin story? Yeah, thanks. That's a good, uh, that's a good question to start with. Um, I mean, the book has got a fairly straightforward origin story, really. Um, about 10 years ago, um, I was working in Manchester um, as a journalist and copywriter. Um, and I really, I really hated my job and I really wanted to quit. 
my job. Um, and I read this this book, which you might have heard of by a guy called John Savage, which is called England's Dreaming. It's a brilliant book, and it's about the punk scene in London. Uh, and I read this book, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to write a kind of a, a similar book about uh, punk in Belfast, a similar book to that book, but, but, but about Belfast, and about the kind of specificities of punk in Belfast, obviously, in terms of the, the troubles, as you said in your introduction there. Um, so that's the kind of that was the kind of impetus for the book, really. And initially, my idea was to write something that was quite uh, journalistic, I suppose, or something a little bit more like John Savage's book, which isn't really an academic book. Um, but I guess then there were kind of two developments as the book progressed, which kind of shaped it into the direction that it that, it, that it's gone in. So first of all, a kind of increasing interest in the oral history dimension of the research, um, particularly via people like Louisa Pastorini and Alessandro Portelli. Um, and then secondly, a kind of increasing interest in social history and memory studies in Northern Ireland. Um, and that's kind of especially through the advice of a guy called Graham Dawson, who was my, my PhD supervisor. Uh, a couple of things that I really uh, enjoyed here for somebody who doesn't didn't know a lot about this history, right? You provide uh, brief introductions to the history of the Troubles, but also um, to the history of the Belfast punk scene. I think that's a good place to start uh, so that we can give some context to the folks that are listening. Uh, what makes the Belfast punk scene simultaneously be part of a transnational phenomenon, right? The punk scene that happened worldwide, but it's also a very particular story. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that one of the things that I wanted to get at in the book was the idea that although punk is sometimes kind of associated with like metropolitan centers like London or New York or whatever, it's got these kind of regional and international iterations um, happening at the same time. So some examples of the kind of transnational dimension of, of the Belfast punk scene that I really like. Um, Brian Young, who uh, was the singer and songwriter of the great Northern Ireland punk band Rudy, um, used to write letters to Stephen Patrick Morrissey in Manchester before he became Morrissey and started the Smiths. And they used to write letters to each other, kind of talking about the scene in Belfast and the scene in Manchester. Um, and then there's an example in the book of how this also works in the slightly later kind of anarcho-punk scene of the 80s uh, with Pete Burns' stories of visiting anarchist social centres and gig venues in Europe uh, before he set up Gyros in Belfast and then started to invite British and European bands to play at their venue in Belfast. So, you know, I think records and publications and people and styles all kind of circulate uh, globally, really, in terms of the punk scene. But I guess... The second thing that I'm trying to get at in the book is that each of these kind of local iterations of punk are kind of responding to local material, social and cultural conditions. And that's the case with punk in Northern Ireland as well. Um, I guess specifically in Northern Ireland, um, that's to do with the Troubles and with the kind of various effects and consequences of the Troubles, which is the war in Northern Ireland that took place from 1969 to 1998 um, and is another one of the kind of focal points of the book, really. Um, I can get into the history of the Troubles a wee bit more later on, if you like, but um, very briefly. <laughs> it's a kind of a late colonial war between the British state, um, a group of Irish people who want to secede from Britain and reunify with Ireland, and a group of Irish people who want to kind of maintain the union. Um, and it's a sort of a 30-year war. There's about 3,800 deaths, hundreds of thousands of injuries, um, and particularly in Belfast, space becomes very sectarianized, very divided between Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, and Catholic Nationalist areas. Um, and so the context for the punk scene, I guess, is that young Protestants and young Catholics both take part in it, which is relatively unusual um, in the context of, of, of the war. 
as I mentioned, I didn't know a lot about this particular history, but uh, reading your book made me think a lot about the particularities of the punk scene. I had the pleasure of experiencing a little bit in Salvador Bahia, uh, Brazil, and also your brilliant discussion of sectarianism and segregation made me think about my work in with segregation in the U.S. South and the role of music and how music sometimes connected people. So that was great. Let's talk a little bit about the methodology, right? And in my introduction, I said uh, that you use an innovative oral history methodology. So let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned Passerini and Portelli. So tell me a little bit about uh, you know, your methodology, how you use the interviews, and why did you decide to use this particular methodology? Yeah, um, it's, kind of a big, it's kind of a big question. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it's 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 pretty straightforward. So the the kind of oral history that I became interested in, which is sometimes called interpretive oral history, sometimes called kind of post-positive oral history, is a kind of a method that's interested in how people narrate their memories um, as much as it's interested in the kind of content of the memories, if that makes sense. So uh, there's a famous Portelli quote, which I think I use in the book, where he says that oral history tells us less about events than about their meanings, so about what they kind of mean in the present as they're being expressed by, by, by the narrator. Um, and I think that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the, the kind of oral history that I became interested in as I was doing the, the, the project. Um, so there's an example in Portelli's work, a famous example of uh, Luigi Tristulli, who's a, a factory worker in Turin, and Portelli interviews a bunch of workers in Turin about, about the death of, of, of this guy. Um, and they all remember his death as being part of a big strike that happened um, and that they won, where actually he died two years earlier um, in a smaller kind of demonstration against Italian membership in NATO. Um, and Portelli kind of says, well, it's interesting that all of these people misremember this. And it's a kind of a meaningful misremembering, like they, they're, they're placing his death into a context that makes more sense and that allows them to tell a more kind of coherent story of class struggle, of, 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 of trade unionism or whatever. Um, and I guess, yeah, that kind of that kind of sense that people are making sense of the past and of the present through their memories and through what they talk about in oral history interviews was was kind of what I wanted to to get at in in my work. The other kind of big concept that I was thinking about there is is is, is sometimes called composure, which is Graham Dawson's concept. And composure is is this kind of it's got kind of a double meaning in the context of oral history. So on the one hand, it's to do with the fact that people compose as in write or you know compose a song, compose whatever, kind of make up their memories, but they also try and find a memory that they're comfortable with, that they, that they feel composed by, that they're able to, uh, yeah, feel comfortable with. And, and so that, that kind of sense of oral history as having this kind of subjective uh, element was, was what I was interested in. Yeah, that's what uh, is really fascinating to me about your book is that, although the subject is really uh, interesting, uh, but you provide sort of ways of doing oral history that will definitely be relevant and interesting to people who are working with very different subjects. So that that was great. Thanks for that. That's, that's really nice to hear because I, I mean that's what I would that's what I would love the book to do. Really, I mean, I in terms of the way I'm using the interviews, I guess it's kind of using one or two interviews at a time. Um, that's maybe a kind of a slightly unusual way of using oral histories. And I, I, there's a few people who, who do it. I don't know if you know Daniel James's book about. Um, 
uh, a, a Peronist meat worker um, in, in Argentina, which is a brilliant book, and it's based on a series of interviews with one woman. Um, there's a woman called Leila Nezi, uh, a Turkish oral historian who also tends to work with one or two interviews at a time, but it's not done that often. And I, and I, I was kind of interested in trying to do that rather than kind of breaking the interviews up into, into chunks. Not really related to that question. I just wanted to throw it out there and that you also gave me an amazing playlist that I've been listening to since I started <laughs> reading your book. So thanks for that as well. And how did you choose, right? Since you're not using uh, several interviews, how do you choose the people who are, you are going to interview for the project in general? And then how do you select who, whose stories and, and experiences are going to make it into the actual chapters? <laughs> well, I mean, this is in some ways kind of an easy question to answer because it was just, I mean, in terms of how I chose the narrators, you know, I don't know, it was just chaos. I don't, it's so hard to recruit for an oral history project. I'm sure you know yourself. Like I, I put lots of things on Facebook and on various kind of social media platforms, just kind of punk heritage Facebook pages. And I got some interviews from there. Um, I put up lots of posters in sort of record shops and bars and clubs in, in Belfast. And I got a few interviews from, from that kind of physical advertising. And then I just talked to people, I guess the social sciences call it like the snowball method, but you know, just uh, an interviewee would suggest a friend or an acquaintance who they thought might also want to be interviewed. Um, and really I didn't, I mean, I didn't get that many interviews. I think I did 14 or 16. So nearly all of the interviews are actually in the book. Um, apart from a handful of people who after the interview decided that they didn't want their interview to be used. Um, so I didn't, I didn't use them. I didn't archive them. Uh, and then in the first couple of chapters, I kind of refer to interviews with uh, John T. Davis, who's a documentary filmmaker, um, and Brian Young, who I mentioned earlier, who's uh, the, the songwriter of this band, Rudy. Um, and those interviews with John and Brian are, are, are good, I guess. I mean, they're, they're interesting interviews, but I kind of had this idea that I didn't want to write too much about people who had who had had some degree of celebrity from being involved in the punk scene, people who've been interviewed before, people who have been in magazines, people who've, yeah, um, been on the telly. <laughs> I kind of, I wanted to kind of keep the book focused on people who were involved in the scene, but not in a kind of public way. Uh, so that's why I didn't use John and Brian's interviews in any, in, a, in the same kind of expansive way as I used the, the other ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, apart from that, I mostly just used all the interviews that I that I got of the people who were willing to be used because I, I didn't actually manage to do that many interviews in the end. <laughs> so it's a fairly straightforward answer. So one concept that uh, it's really important here that you use in, in a few of the chapters, and that, that was something that really, uh, I, I found really interesting and, and thought about how it applied to you know my work is structures of feeling. Um, tell us what it is first, and how does that idea, that concept, frame your analysis of the interviews here? Yeah, thanks. Um, so structure of feeling is a, is a sort of coinage by the British Marxist and, and literary theorist Raymond Williams. Um, and I guess for Williams, it's a way of talking about what he calls um, shared experience in solution. So the kind of kind of lived relations as, as they're lived. And for Williams, they're kind of found in uh, literary texts, mostly. He's talking about how you can kind of find these in, in novels and things like that. Um, but some recent historians of, of, of punk, uh, so Matt Worley, um, David Wilkinson, John Street, used the idea of structure of feeling to, to talk about the punk scene. And I kind of got the idea from them, really. Um, but with them, they, 
they a bit like Williams. They they kind of their analysis is quite textual, right? Like they write about zines, they write about uh, the sleeves of records, they write about the lyrics of records themselves, but they they don't do oral history interviews. So I was kind of interested in how you could take this structure of feeling idea and bring it into conversation with some of the kind of theories and ideas of of, of oral history. Um, so in the book, I guess for me, it's about trying to get a kind of shared collective effective felt experience that the interviews are all kind of describing in different ways and it's about understanding how that shared experience was formed in the context of northern ireland or the troubles or whatever um i guess without getting too like deep into the thickets of marxist theory which we definitely don't want to do um, i think for williams what's at stake in using this idea is that he wants to say like these relationships are are shaped by material conditions so the kind of bias uh in marxism and the kind of bias superstructure model but they're not completely determined by them. So he's kind of trying to talk about how economic conditions and things like that shape experience, but they don't determine them. And I, and I, I kind of that idea about like uh, the context, like the troubles shaping my interviews experiences, but not completely determining them. I think that's kind of what I wanted to get at with the, the, the structure of the idea. Does that make sense? Yes. When we think about the troubles, of course, um, sectarianism and segregation come to mind, right? Uh, but you write here that the nature of punk's intervention in the structures of sectarianism and segregation is complicated. And I think that's an important contribution that your book is doing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you. So I think there's sort of, there's sort of two things to say um, about that. So the, the, the first way in which it's complicated is, I think, to do with my own, as a historian, my own reading of the conflict in Northern Ireland. So I guess I think there's maybe a slightly naive reading of the of the troubles um, and a reading that kind of predominates in public culture in some ways that views it as this kind of predominantly sectarian religious conflict as being this kind of atavistic, weird, like religious war that's kind of inexplicable in the context of the modern, secular, liberal world. That's kind of one of the hegemonic readings of, of, of the Troubles. And I guess I think that that's a reading of the Troubles that kind of elides or conceals the colonial colonial roots of the conflict and also the critical role of English colonialism in Ireland um, and tends to think of contemporary Northern Ireland as having these kind of interpersonal sectarian antagonisms which need to be broken down. And I, I guess I just don't, I don't think that's the right reading of the situation. So in terms of the punk scene, I. I felt that constructing it as this kind of magical space of cross-sectarian friendship and sociality kind of supported that that hegemonic reading of the conflict, and I, I was keen to kind of avoid that. So that's one thing, and that's kind of driven by my own feelings or my own analysis of, of, of the troubles. Um, but then the second thing beyond that, I think, was that just in doing the interviews, like in conducting and listening to the interviews, I felt that the interviewees offered a much more kind of nuanced and messy view of what being a punk in the context of the war was like um, they were kind of very attuned to limits and to tensions and to difficulties, whether that's to do with like, you know, walking through certain parts of the city and not feeling safe or talking about punk as being this kind of temporary space, but it doesn't get rid of the kind of structures of sectarian discrimination and violence and so on. Um, or talking about kind of arguments and disagreements within the scene itself about class and gender and sexuality as well as sectarianism. So there's, that kind of sense from the interviews, and then at the same time, there's this kind of sense that they did conjure up this structure of feeling that that spoke to some kind of sense of an alternative, an alternative way of living, alternative way of relating to each other in Northern Ireland, and I wanted to try and capture that possibility as well. So it's kind of tricky to stress, like you know, limits and possibilities at, at, at the same time. But that's kind of what I wanted to do in in, in the reading of the interviews. Um, I, there's a guy called John 
Nagel, who's written a book at the minute about the history of kind of, or the genealogy of kind of anti-sectarianism in Northern Ireland and how that's actually like a super complicated thing. No one really knows what sectarianism is a lot of the time or people talk about sectarianism, but they can't really define it. So calling something anti-sectarian, I mean, how can you explain what that is if you don't even know what sectarianism is in the first place, right? Um, so John Nagel has written a book about that, which I think will be interesting. Um, yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. Sorry, that was a bit of a... Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's no, funny. yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> and I'm really interested uh, in how or where history is done, right? Mm. Especially when it's done outside of uh, traditional academic uh, settings. So it, I was curious when, when I read here, when you write that the first historians of punk were the punks themselves. So I mm. wanted you to talk a bit about that. And um, so, uh, something that you mentioned here, how has the popular memory of punk been mobilized in Northern Ireland? Yeah, thanks. That's a good, it's a good question. I'm glad that you like that line because I like, I like that sentence myself. And I like that, I like that idea. I guess I was thinking there, I think I, I think I cite her work in the, in the book, but I was thinking of the work of people like Red Chidgley on, zines as kind of sites of popular memory um and then of stuff like record collecting and things like that as well um this kind of Raphael samuel idea that, that that collecting is a form of history um which i talk about a little bit in the, in the final chapter with uh gareth um so yeah i mean i i do think that that's true that, that these kind of see all kinds of scenes not just punk i mean i think all kinds of cultural subcultural scenes are kind of historicizing themselves all the time right um, I think even with the kind of punk thing, you've got this punks are always saying, oh, this is punk, but this isn't punk. This is punk, but this isn't punk. And I think that kind of like delineation is very kind of historical in a way, or it, it feels like listening to historians at a conference or something, you know? Yes. Um, in terms of the popular memory of punk, I would say that I, I think I, I kind of get into this in the book, but I guess there's like, it feels to me like there's two sort of waves of, of, of popular memory of punk. Um, there's one that occurs around the publication of it, make, it Makes You Want to Spit, which is this amazing kind of uh, uh, collectively authored um, book about the punk scene in Belfast. And there's some kind of um, revival gigs and things like that that happen around the time that that uh, book comes out. Um, that's just after the, the peace process. So the, there's a kind of an optimistic sense there. And I think the, the memory of punk is kind of enlisted in that kind of moment of, of optimism. Um, and then a few years later, something I talk about quite a lot in the film is, oh, sorry, something I talk quite a lot about in the book is the film Good Vibrations, which is this kind of biopic of Terry Hooley, which is very successful um, and which brings a new kind of wave of like visibility to the to the popular memory of punk, I guess. Um, and the film was interesting because it came out just as I was starting the research for the book release. Really, so my interviewees talked about that a lot and kind of measured and uh, analyzed their experiences in relation to the way that the scene was represented in the film. Um, so I think that was a, a really significant kind of intervention in, in, in the kind of popular memory culture of punk. And I guess the final thing to say about that is that all of those kind of instances of, 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 of that popular memory are fundamentally connected to the kind of contested memories of the troubles in, in, in Northern Ireland um, in a kind of complicated way. Uh, so I think, you know, there's, there's still 
lots of kind of unsettled questions about about how the war is remembered and represented and talked about and and, and thought about in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and and I think all of those representations are kind of part of that to some extent. Yeah, that that idea that representations, right, popular culture, all the sorts of media, how they affect memory. That that was really uh, interesting to read mm. and again to apply to it in other contexts. But I think the chapter that uh, resonated the most with me uh, is chapter five because, as you know, I study gender and sexuality. And you show here how, uh, and I'm quoting you, punk is remembered as challenging hegemonic discourses on gender and sexuality in Northern Ireland. But you also showed, uh, you showed the ways in which punk was complicit in elements of the socially conservative nature of Northern Irish society, or at the very least, unable to escape it. Um, tell us a bit about that. Uh, sure, I'm glad that you. I think that's maybe my favorite chapter as well. Um, it's it's the one that I wrote completely new for the book, um, so so I feel it's the one that I still feel the most enthusiastic about. I think. Um, I think in terms of the question of gender and sexuality and the punk scene, uh, David Wilkinson, who I mentioned before, has written really well about this in the kind of English context about the kind of how punk uses various kinds of transgressive sexual imaginaries, but sometimes can be quite regressive in the way that it uses them. Um, but how at the same time it does also create these kind of potentially liberatory spaces. I think David talks about the Buzzcocks as um, an, an example of that and the Buzzcocks' involvement in kind of gay liberation um, activism in, in, in Britain. Um, the context for this in Northern Ireland, I guess, is the argument that various kind of feminist thinkers, including Begon Aritzaga and Fidel Maash, have made about the kind of specific forms of like militarized masculinity that exist in, in, in Northern Ireland, um, partly as a consequence of the, of the troubles. Um, so there's a, a sense that there's maybe a particularly kind of <laughs> potent form of like societal kind of misogyny, really, that, that, that kind of runs through, um, Northern Irish culture in all kinds of ways. Um, and I guess what I was trying to get in that chapter through my conversation with Hector in particular is that you kind of get a sense that on the one hand, the punk scene feels like it's sort of breaking those things down a little bit. It's supposed to have been a, a relatively safe space for, for gay and for queer people and for difference in general, um, for like non-conventional performances of masculinity and stuff like that. But then on the other hand, I think it's probably still shot through with misogyny and heteronormativity and so on. And I, I think that kind of comes out in the, in the other interview, uh, in that chapter to some extent. Um, and even in kind of Hector's interview, I think you've kind of got these two or three at least different discourses of masculinity kind of running through it, which I, I mean, I love, I love that interview with Hector. That's my, my favorite interview that I did. I think he's such a, he was such a lucid and thoughtful and, and, and very charming interviewee. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I, yeah, I, it's kind of a, I think it's kind of a contested site for those kind of discourses. Of course, of course it is. And I'm sure you've come across similar things in your own, your own work. Um, and I guess you you can see the kind of liberatory or or radical dimensions, but you can also see the conservative or the the regressive dimensions. Exactly. And one thing that I uh, um, loved reading in that chapter, and I think that's something that I hope more people are paying attention to, is the the idea of the gay bar as the space that welcomes mm. all sorts of misfits. Right. Uh, in several, in, I, I, as you know, I studied queer history and in, in different places you've encountered this, not just a safe queer space, but also for people who do not fit in in some way or another. 
Um, so uh, I'm very curious, as you know, I'm about to publish my first book as well. So I'm really, <laughs> I, I, I love asking people about the, the small and big decisions that they make when they're writing their, uh, their books. So why did you decide to wait until the conclusion to talk about yourself, right? To put yourself on the book and talk about your own experiences and how, you know, you're, you related to the punk scene. This is a super interesting question. I've been thinking about this since you sent me the list of questions. I've been thinking about this. Um, and I, I'm actually curious to hear what you what you think about this as well. Um, I, so the first thing to say is that I, I think that the way I've written about the interviews, the kind of working with one or two interviews, making the kind of dynamic of the interview quite present, right? Um, I think that doing that is an attempt to make myself visible in the analysis in a way, although that might not always be totally explicit. So... There's examples I was thinking of the bit in my interview with Alison Farrell where she talks about being from Dungannon and I say that there's a little bit of a kind of intersubjective moment there because I'm also from a kind of a small town in Northern Ireland and there's a kind of bit of recognition between us there of what it's like to be from small towns in Northern Ireland, the kind of uh, the visibility that any sort of difference um, brings down upon you. Um, there's a bit in the interview with Pizzi where I talk about filling a silence kind of awkwardly by talking about how I don't like the band Crass and then he talks about how much he likes Crass. Um, so there's there's kind of moments in, in, in the analysis where I'm trying to make myself present but not um, not, not entirely visible, I suppose. Uh, and then the conclusion, where you mentioned I kind of talk a little bit more about myself, the conclusion, I guess, is, is an attempt to bring the analysis forward to the, the present and to try and think about what it means to write this history of punk in the kind of conjuncture of contemporary Northern Ireland. Um, and that just seemed like a kind of an opposite place to bring in a wee bit of, of, of myself and my own experiences. But I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about, I was thinking about it on my flight. Uh, to, I'm, I'm in Belfast right now, so I, I just flew to Belfast and I was thinking about it on the flight. I think maybe, you know, the book comes out of the PhD and in general, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the the model of reflexivity that's sometimes imposed on you in a PhD context where you kind of give a laundry list of features about yourself and then you call that like oppositionality or whatever. <laughs> and I wanted to try and thread it through the interviews a little bit more subtly. Um, so that, 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 that's the kind of like positive reason for waiting until the conclusion. And then in terms of a negative reason, um, I think there's probably also a degree of kind of reluctance. Um, I was thinking my, my, my colleague, uh, Andrea Garcia Gonzalez writes about discomfort in research. And I think there's probably a little bit of discomfort going on there as well. You know, I guess my training, such as it was, was as a historian um, at, at Trinity in Dublin. It was quite a traditional um, kind of history degree, um, very much about kind of absenting yourself from the analysis. And I, I think that I'm trying to resist that that to some extent. Um, reading people like Tina Camp, C.J. Hartman, even Louisa Passerini in her brilliant book, Autobiography of 1969, kind of brings her herself in in a really interesting way. But there's definitely a kind of anxiety about, about resisting that kind of absence, you know? Um so I think there's a, there's like a reluctance thing there as well, if that makes sense. But I don't I don't know what what you think about that. No, that uh, I really feel you, and probably ask me that again when I write uh, publish my second book because this one my 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 current book is pretty interdisciplinary, so it was sent to different people. I kept moving it to the beginning, to the end of the book. That's why I was so curious about your decision. Now it's sort of like there's like a prologue. Uh, where I talk about myself, <laughs> but I, I, I tried, feel you. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a, I had a few iterations of the of the book where there was a prologue where I talked about myself as well, and maybe some of that stuff that's in the conclusion now I brought to the 
to the front, but I decided to make, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard to figure out how to do it, right? Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> speaking of um, second books, um, before we go, do you have anything new that you're working on, that you're going to work on next, that you're working on now? Maybe are, are you doing that? And are you doing research in Belfast? So tell us, uh, what are you, uh, what's your new project? Okay, um, I'm, I'm not actually doing any research in Belfast. I'm going to speak at a seminar at Queen's about this research and about the special issue of the, the journal, the Oral History Journal. Um, I, I started this new job at Strathclyde, um, so I've kind of the last few months have been basically just settling in there, doing a little bit of teaching. Um, I have got a couple of uh, you know research plans which are kind of ongoing, but which I haven't really started yet. So the, the first one is to do with uh, social housing and particularly high-rise housing in Northern Ireland. Um, so there's people like Michael Rahman, Lynn Abrams, who've written really fascinating books about the kind of memory of, of, of high-rise housing in Britain, in, in Scotland in Lynn's case, and, and London in Michael's case. But no one has really written about the specificities of high-rise housing in Northern Ireland. Uh, me and my, my friend Gary Gomez-Alfaro published a, an article about Davis and Rossville flats, two of the kind of biggest high-rise developments in Northern Ireland um, a couple of years ago, uh, and we used kind of archive oral histories to do that, um, oral histories undertaken by other people. And I think I'd like to do a project where I do some interviews myself on uh, the kind of memory of high-rise housing in Northern Ireland, particularly in the context of the kind of housing crisis in, well, I mean, in Europe and possibly the world, but but certainly there's a housing crisis in Ireland. Um, so I think thinking about this kind of like uh, the kind of ideas, what, what people wanted to do with the high-rise housing, why it didn't work or what people felt when they lived there, why they felt it didn't work is, is, is kind of something I'd like to do. Um, and that's my kind of, that's the big project that I've got kind of in, in train at the minute. And I've, I've started to write some bids for that. And then the other one, I mean, I'm reluctant even to talk about it because it's still just a very vague idea, but um, I don't know if you, Actually, there's no reason why you would have seen the news as a British thing, but <laughs> it was in the news today that the British government has just approved a, a new mine in Cumbria, uh, the first new mine in Britain for years and years and years. There's been oh, a big I just uproar. saw that, yes. Yeah, and there's been a big uproar from kind of green um, organisations, obviously. And in Ireland, uh, in Tyrone, on the border between the south and the north of Ireland, um, in the spare, this area called the Sperrins, very beautiful part of Northern Ireland, there's been this kind of ongoing struggle uh with an american mining uh company that wants to set up a gold mine in this part of the sparrows and there's an organization called uh sea of our sparrows who've been kind of campaigning now for 10 15 years to try and prevent that from happening it hasn't happened yet but it's it's kind of an ongoing struggle uh and they've also made a lot of connections kind of global connections with other people kind of resisting different forms of extractivism around the around the globe um and I, yeah, I don't know. I've got, I mean, this is why I say I'm reluctant to talk about it because it's still quite a vague idea. But I, I think I'd like to think about how oral history could kind of intervene in that topic. Um, whether it's possible to do oral history interviews in the context of something that's still kind of ongoing like that, does that turn you into, do you become a journalist or a sociologist? You're not allowed to be an oral historian anymore. I don't know. But I, I've just been, I've been kind of been following that story quite a lot. And it's, I think the kind of, transnational actually to go back to transnationalism the kind of transnational dimension of it is really interesting to me um so i've been thinking about that as well but that's still very much in the kind of uh back of the beer mat stage 
Yeah, both projects are fascinating, but I'm living in Vancouver, so I know a thing or two about housing crisis. <laughs> yes, so absolutely. yeah, I really want to read uh, what you, uh, anything you write about that. And I hope you'll come back when you have a new book. <laughs> I'd be very happy to. And this has been such a treat to be able to talk to you about this. I've been, you know, I followed a bit of your process and I've been waiting for this book to come out, looking forward to reading it. So, well, thank you so much for taking the time, you know, your busy trip to talk to me about your book. No, thank you so much. It's, it's really been a pleasure. It's been really nice. And to the folks listening to us, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network's podcast. I just spoke with Fergus Rolston about Belfast Punk and the Troubles, an oral history. It was published by Manchester University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.